Find your way to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. My name is Tyler Holder, as Pastor Tony just shared, and I'm excited to be here sharing with you God's word. It's fun to see how churches in the Great Commission Collective can lean on one another, can be a part of what God is doing, not just in their local context, but also in the context of what the collective offers, a network of churches around the country and really around the world. So I'm grateful to be here this morning opening God's word with you. And as you find your way to Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to really begin by asking you a question. Have you ever fallen prey to an offer that was too good to be true? Has anybody ever done that? Right? I, I've been married now 13 years, and my wife, Janelle, is a wonderful, long-suffering woman. She has endured a lot in this past 13 years with me, but I can remember on our honeymoon, somebody gifted us one of those weak condo rentals. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The vacation club rentals, right? We were young. We were 22 at the time, and man, we barely had $500 to our name, so we pull up into Sevierville, Tennessee, and man, the grounds are immaculate. You got the putt-putt green and the pool and I'm like, hey, this is great. This is free. This is wonderful. Let's just, let's chalk it up, man. It's gonna be a great week. And as we're checking in, they lean forward and go, would, would you like a free lunch? <laughs> yes. Yes, I would. Put me down for two. Well, here's the deal. You gotta listen to a 90-minute presentation. That's fine. I can tune out for 90 minutes. That's great. I can do that. So my wife and I, we have been married maybe four days, have about $500 to our name, and we sit in, and as we're sitting in on this presentation and they're giving us lunch, they're going, hey, we'll give you a $150 gift card too. Are you, man, the Lord is shining upon us today. Praise the Lord. And they just start to unpack the beauty and the, the, just the immensity of this vacation club. And man, if I really valued my wife and if I really valued my marriage, I would make this investment and begin to give them money. I'm like, wait, 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 wait a second. You're giving me $150, right? Yeah, okay, I got $650 after that to my name. I'm not gonna invest anything in you. The offer was way too good to be true for me. And my wife, bless her heart, has been uh, along the ride on many of those offers over the years, right? What I love is, is that when, when we come to these offers that are too good to be true, if we have eyes to see and, and a mind on our shoulders, then chances are we'll be really quick to see that what somebody is offering us is in fact too good to be true. And, and what we see here in Hebrews chapter 12 and what we have to see as we examine our text today is that for the believers that this book was written to, Jesus was that offer. He seemed too good to be true. You have to keep in mind that the book of Hebrews is written to a predominantly Christian Jewish background context. So for a believer in the first century that has come out of Judaism, realize what they've come out of. They had Moses, they had Abraham, they had the prophets, they had the law, they were God's children, and then this cat Jesus comes onto the scene and breaks it all for them, and they're offered something that is far greater than what they had ever had in Judaism. And yet, it seemed too good to be true. In the book of Hebrews, what the writer has done for us so far in the first 11 chapters, he has painted for us this picture that Jesus is better. That he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the Sabbath. He's better than the sacrifices. 
And I can just see the readers going, oh my goodness, could this be? Like I've placed my faith in Jesus, but could this be? Is he truly better than all of these things? I've spent my life devoted to this, but yet what you're telling me, could it be? Is he in fact better? The author of the book of Hebrews has already told us that Jesus is in fact better. He's a better messenger than the angels. He's a better leader than Moses. He's a great and high priest. He offers us a better rest than the Sabbath and he is the better and ultimate sacrifice that has taken away the sins of the world. So for the people here in the first century and for you and I today, the question is still presented before us, do we believe that Jesus is better? Because if Jesus is better, man, that changes everything for you. If Jesus is truly better, if he's better than anything the world could offer, then it changes how you live your life. If he's better than a life of comfort and ease or a job with benefits and a good retirement, then it changes how you live your life. If Jesus is better than a college scholarship you're searching for or friends and family accepting you, then it changes everything. But here's the linchpin. You and I, if we're faithful disciples of Jesus, we have to put our faith into practice and we have to examine it and ask the question, do we believe, do you believe that Jesus is in fact better? So this morning, that's where I want us to go as we look at Hebrews chapter 12, just the first 11 verses. I hope what we'll see today is that we will see as a church that Jesus is better, and by faith we can believe that. But in order for us to get there, we're gonna ask three simple questions that will examine our faith and challenge us to see where it actually is. So I hope you find your way to Hebrews chapter 12. We're gonna read the first 11 verses. The writer is writing and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Can I get an amen right there? Come on. I've never disciplined my son. And he looked at me and go, Dad, that was wonderful. (laughs) For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Harvest Decatur, the first question we'll ask ourselves today 
as we examine our faith is simply this. If Jesus is better, am I persevering or giving up? Am I persevering or giving up? We're gonna look at the first two verses and the writer here in Hebrews chapter 12, he begins this section of scripture with a connecting word. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, he's giving us a glimpse backwards and encouraging us to keep in mind the faithful witnesses that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. If you've been in church any length of time or if you're familiar with your Bibles, then you'll realize that Hebrews chapter 11 is so often what we call the, the hall of faith, this kind of list of men and women that were faithful, committed followers, even to the point of death. These witnesses, they have endured such trial that it was said in Hebrews chapter 11 that the world was not worthy of them. So the writer here is drawing our minds back to the faithful that have gone before us, these faithful witnesses that give us a picture of what it looks like to follow faithfully. And as we take a look back, notice what he says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Using Hebrews 11 as our foundation, the writer shows us that these witnesses, they aren't absent from our lives today. They provide us with the example of what it looks like to faithfully follow. We have witnesses surrounding us even now that have gone before us and show us what it looks like to follow Jesus despite hardship, despite suffering, despite success, despite persecution. And the reality is, is that these faithful witnesses, in Hebrews chapter 11, yes, but also the faithful witnesses that have gone before you, that have led you to a faithful following of Jesus. These faithful witnesses, they show us the importance of laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Now just pause here for a moment and and really just catch what the author told us. That, that in this enduring, persevering race, we as a community of disciples to Jesus, we are told that we have an active engagement with faith. We are told to lay aside, to take off every weight and sin. Now, I don't know what Mike Holder's like here, but hopefully I'll live up to his namesake. There was a time in my life when, when I did long distance running. Now I know what you're thinking, he's clearly an athlete, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a long time ago, it was about 20 years ago at this point, right? But I can remember as, as I would begin to prepare for my race, man, things would just start coming off, right? The hoodie would come off, the sweatpants would come off, watch, rings, necklace, everything would come off. I'd take off my shoes and my socks. I'd put on racing spikes and I wouldn't even tie the laces. I would use lightweight tape to tape them up so that I would know that they would never come off my feet. And as I would approach that line and waited for the gun, I had shed everything that would hinder me. What I love about what the writer of the book of Hebrews has just told us is that we too, as faithful followers of Jesus, we're in this race and he is telling us to take off everything which would hinder our perseverance in it. 
I guarantee you won't see the winner of the Chicago Marathon running that race in concrete shoes. And I guarantee you won't see a faithful follower of Jesus putting all sorts of weights and sins upon him. You'll see no faithful follower persevere to the end if they willingly put on weight and sin. For you and I today, the writer has declared to us that we should take off, we should cast aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us because we are in a long race that requires our perseverance. So this morning, let me ask you, are you persevering or are you giving up? Have you been able to identify in your life the weights and the sins which cling so closely to you? By the way, there is a difference. A weight isn't something that's necessarily sinful. A weight could be you as a middle school student wanting nothing more than to be the model for the class and that hinders your pursuit of Jesus. A weight could be you as a young adult calling back to your mind time and time again the life you once lived and not realizing that there is now no, therefore no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. A weight could be you as an adult thinking that you need a legalistic obedience to the Bible because you don't trust God's promise that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you feel like you have to continually work to earn his love, grace, and acceptance. Those are weights that can so easily cling to you, that can make every step a dread and every moment seem like a burden. There are weights that can quickly encircle you. Weights weigh you down, they, they cause you to tire easily. But weights are different than sins. A weight is something that can hinder your pursuit of Christ. A sin is an explicit affront to God. There's a sin that easily surrounds you, and it's most likely something that you can quickly call to your mind. Maybe it's the pride that you feel in your heart or the lust that you have in your mind or the division that you cause with your words or the pornography that you view on a regular basis. It's the words you use. It's any and everything that is counter to holiness and a faithful life in Christ. That's the sin that can quickly encircle you. Weights and sins, they encircle you. They cling to you, they bring you down, they make the race that you're in as a faithful follower of Jesus a burden, but notice what the writer says. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the hope? As we lay aside every weight, as we lay aside every sin, we are able to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now please hear me. Please hear me, Harvest Decatur. There is a race that you began the moment you entered into a saving relationship with Jesus. It's not as if you come into a relationship with Jesus and you go, no, I'm good on this one. I'll catch the next one as it comes around. No, 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 no. The moment you enter into a relationship with Jesus where the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and you repent and come to a faith in Christ alone, you enter into a race, a long, persevering race that lasts your life. 
That race is a race that needs endurance. That race is a race that has been set before us and we consider Christ above all. So realize that the invitation to follow Christ, if you've, if you've repented of your sins, if you're a faithful disciple in Jesus, the invitation to follow Christ isn't an invitation to be a part of a quick sprint. It's an invitation to be a part of a lifelong, enduring race. Realize that the redemption Jesus offers, by the way, the redemption he offers us through the power of the gospel, the redemption that he gives us doesn't have a low bar of admittance. Coming into faith in Jesus isn't just believing in Jesus so that I won't go to hell. That's not the point of the gospel. And in reality, all that does is create for you another weight that you have to carry thinking that the only benefit of a relationship with Jesus is that I won't go to hell. That's not the power of the gospel. Hear me. The gospel is an invitation for us to live in the beauty and grace and eternal life that Jesus offers right here, right now. It's not about just not going to hell when I die. It's about living in the kingdom presently, shedding the weight, shedding the sin, and pursuing him as our only consideration. That's the beauty of the gospel. It invites us to acknowledge our sinfulness before a holy God and realize that these sins have created this chasm and because of this chasm, we can't cross it. And the gospel is what gives us the bridge. And when we believe in faith and repent of our sins and put it in Christ alone, we not only enter into a persevering lifelong race, but man, you are given the kingdom here and now. Harvest Decatur, this, this area would be different and can be different by the power of the gospel. Your communities and schools and workplaces and families could be radically transformed. If we believe that the kingdom is present here, if we persevere in the race that God has given us, oh, that that would be your pursuit. There's hope that is set before us and we have these examples and this faithful cloud of witnesses of laying aside every weight, laying aside every sin and the hope in running this race with endurance. We have hope by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The idea here, by the way, in verse two is that we are strengthened in our faith when we look to Jesus. That word looking, by the way, is one that literally means to look undistractedly. I don't know if you're married, but I can remember on my wedding day as the back doors of the church opened and I saw my soon-to-be wife for the first time come into view. Man, there was nothing that would break my gaze. In fact, I started sobbing like an uncontrollable child. It was was a little embarrassing. One of the pastors leaned forward and goes, quit being a baby. I'm like, bro, this is my moment, right? Right? That's the type of gaze, that's the type of look we have when we consider Jesus. We have an undistracted look, a a devotion to him. We, We can't be diverted in what we see. So as we are encouraged by the faithful that have lived their lives looking to Jesus before us, we too are encouraged to look without distraction to him. Why? Because for the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has finished the race. 
He's worthy to be looked at as our prime example of faithfulness and followership. He is the one that we model our lives after and gain enduring strength from as we run. So Harvest, let me ask, in this race, if you are a faithful disciple of Jesus, are you persevering or are you giving in? Man, have you cast off the weight that, that clings so closely to you? Have you cast off the sin that clings so closely to you so that you might with perseverance pursue Christ alone? If not, and if you find yourself giving in more than you find yourself persevering, oh, the opportunity for you to repent and come back and be invigorated in your life with Jesus is present for you today. The second question we ask as we look at our text this morning is that if Jesus is better, am I resisting sin or am I giving in? Notice verses three and four. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author continues in his exaltation of Christ and tells us that we shouldn't just look to Jesus, but we should consider him. Now, when I think of the word consider, a thousand things come into my mind. It's all of the opportunities and options we have before us. In fact, a few weeks back, my wife and I decided to take Jax, my eight-year-old, and baby girl, my, I'm gonna get her age wrong right now. I shouldn't have done that. She's older than four and younger than eight. So she's six, I think. She's six. Don't tell her. I won't show her that part of this sermon, right? We decided to take my son Jax and my daughter Adelaide with my mother-in-law on a quick vanity shopping trip, right? Do you, you understand, men, when I do this, it wasn't quick, right? You understand that as you have a wife that tells you, man, let's just go real quick and shop for vanities, and you roll up into Menards, and you look, and there's, man, there's, bam, just a plethora of vanities to choose from. Do you want 18-inch 20 inch, 24 inch, 36 inch, do you want modern or farmhouse? Do you want white or cream? It's the exact same color to me. So we, we go up and down the aisles of Menards considering all the options we have and, and we don't find one we want. So we get in the car and we drive down the street to Home Depot and it's the exact same thing on repeat. And this quick trip is turning into a long one and we go up and down the aisles and my wife is going, maybe that one, maybe that one, not that one, definitely not that one. I'm going, oh my gosh, it's just a sink. Can we just get a sink? Is that possible? We don't find it at Home Depot, so we drive down the street to Lowe's and at this point, my daughter, she's getting a little antsy because we've, this quick trip's lasted about an hour and a half, two hours at this point. So we end up at Lowe's checking out and my daughter's just sitting in the door holding it open for everybody. Go, please, just let me leave. Just let me leave. So we buy this vanity from Lowe's and we considered all these options and a week later we returned it. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Realize that, that when the author of Hebrews says consider Jesus, he's, he's not telling us to consider something like I considered vanities. He's not telling us to shop him around. Like, find the best Jesus for you. That's not what he's saying. He's declaring to us that in this race that we're running, we have one consideration, and it's Jesus. He's the one that we consider. He's the one that we put our eyes upon. He's the one that we always call to our mind. In fact, the word there for consider literally means to think carefully with effect and precision. It carries with it this idea of calculating. The reality is, 
is that when we neglect to consider Jesus, when we neglect to look to him and realize that he is the perfecter and founder of our faith, that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself on the cross, when we neglect to consider Jesus solely, then we quickly become weary and faint-hearted. Do you see it? Do you see it there in Hebrews? The truth is, is that by faith we believe Jesus is better, and if we do, then we will quickly realize that this race that we're running in is hard. And man, it can, it can really suck the life out of you. You can quickly become discouraged. That's why this race calls for endurance. That's why this race calls us to only consider Christ, the one who faithfully completed it. The struggle here that's brought to the forefront, by the way, is the struggle against sin. And as we wage war against sin, one of two things will happen. We will live victorious in Christ or we will live condemned under sin. What happens when we consider other things, by the way? If, if our struggle is against sin and, and I don't consider Jesus first, if my struggle is against sin and and I think that I can battle it on my own, what happens? What am I left with? So I don't know about you, Harvest Decatur, but for me, when I have taken my consideration off of Jesus and I have waged war against sin, what I end up with are rules, roadblocks, and ramparts that I trust in besides Jesus. In my struggle against sin, when I've taken my eyes off of Jesus as my only consideration, what I end up with is, is justifying my own sin as I compare myself to others. Because I might be pretty bad, but I'm not as bad as you. And somehow that makes me feel better. When I don't consider Jesus in my fight against sin, what inevitably happens to me is I become discouraged and I fail. Because I have taken my considerations off of the one who promised victory. And, and, and I feel like I, I should be clear here that in your fight against sin, it, it's wise at times to set up barriers and ramparts and rules, absolutely. But if that's what you trust in, to defeat the sin that dwells within you, then you will fail every time. And you will become a crusty, legalistic naysayer. Jesus offers you something better. He offers you a better consideration. When we consider Jesus and when we have him as our only consideration, our struggle against sin is vastly different. When he is our only consideration, we have an example to follow. We have strength in the midst of weariness and faint-heartedness. We have the promise of a reward to come in a future city where our struggle against sin will be no more. So let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, in your belief, in your faith, if Jesus is better, are you resisting sin or are you giving in? And it could be that this morning, I mean, you've experienced failure and setback this week. And just in asking the question, man, are you resisting sin or are you giving in? Your mind is racing back to all the failure you've experienced. Your mind is running to and condemning you and everything that has happened over the past week. And it could be that maybe even last night, man, you just failed miserably. Hear me. And hear what the author of the book of Hebrews is telling you. When you become discouraged, 
when you become weary and faint-hearted, no matter if you're a teenage boy who's fallen prey to sin or an elderly woman who is prone to trust in her own considerations rather than Jesus or anyone in between, the invitation that the writer of Hebrews gives you and that is available to you this morning is to place your faith and consideration fully in Jesus afresh and anew. And by faith believe that Jesus is better, that he's a better consideration than anything else that you might consider above him and repent and come back to him. A faithful disciple that lives defeated because of sin needs but repent and come back to the Lord. That offer's there for you today. By faith, if we believe Jesus is better, how will our lives reflect that? Are we resisting sin or are we giving in? The third and final question that we'll ask this morning is simply this. If Jesus is better, am I enduring training or fleeing from him? Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through 11, we see this picture that's presented before us. And if you'll notice, there's a hyperlink here in verses five and six. Do you see the hyperlink? Do y'all love hyperlinks? I love it because I can make it, make it say whatever I want. Do you guys do this in your email where you insert a link and then you can make it say something like click here or sermon notes or whatever? No, you don't do that? I do that. I play with people when I do that just to see what they'll click on. It's usually good things, right? There's a hyperlink here in Hebrews chapter 12 that brings us back to Proverbs chapter 3. In fact, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer provides us with these hyperlinks that draw us back to the Old Testament. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, we see the hyperlink draw us to Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, where we see this father's instruction to his child. In Hebrew, or in Proverbs chapter three, we we read, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The reason why the writer in the book of Hebrews, by the way, draws us back continually to the Old Testament is because he's showing us time and time again that Jesus isn't a New Testament phenomenon. That Jesus has been active and present from Genesis to Revelation. The whole narrative of scripture paints the beautiful picture of redemption that Jesus has brought to fulfillment. And here in chapter 12, what he is doing, he's bringing into view a beautiful instruction given from a father to a son. And he is showing us how that instruction is applied to us today in view of our relationship with Jesus. Notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He brings to our minds this familiar passage, and before our minds, by the way, race to all the discipline that maybe we've endured in our life, allow me to to kind of frame this word in Hebrews chapter 12. The word here that the writer uses for discipline is a word that does mean discipline, but it also means train, to train or to engage in training. So for us this morning, when when we read and when we're asked the question, am I experiencing God's discipline? What you should read is, is, man, am I experiencing the training that God's offering me through his discipline? We're told here as children of God, through faith in Jesus, that we have the honor of receiving the discipline of the Lord. 
And Harvest Decatur, please hear me. The discipline that God gives us is his education for his sons and daughters. That this discipline is meant to intersect our lives and to train us for righteous living. That's why God disciplines us. That's why he trains us. So for us this morning, hear the encouragement from the Lord. We shouldn't disregard his discipline. We shouldn't disregard his training. When he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, what he's telling us is that we, consider, we should not consider his discipline to be of little or no worth. God disciplines us because he loves us. Much like we discipline our children because we love them. In the life of a faithful follower of Christ, we endure training, we endure discipline because we know, we know that this training that God gives us is meant to create in us a pursuit of holiness and to bear a fruit of righteousness. That's what that training gives us. That's what that discipline gives us. Again, hear what a relationship with Jesus entails here in Hebrews chapter 12. It entails a willing submission to his correction, a willing submission to his discipline because God disciplines us as sons and daughters because he loves us. And because he loves us, he gives us these opportunities, he gives us these moments where we can willingly submit to God's discipline. And it is always meant to propel us towards holiness and righteousness. From that hyperlink in verses five and six, we move to the remainder of our text this morning in verses 11, seven through 11. And the remainder of our text this morning is the author's explanation of Proverbs chapter three. As we endure training, looking to Jesus, considering him in the midst of our struggle against sin, what we realize is that God's treating us as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I can remember growing up that the worst thing my mom would say to me would be, well, wait till your father gets home. Am I the only one? Like it could be 8.30 in the morning on a Tuesday in the middle of summer and I could have done something foolish. And my mom, I mean, I would just want her. Just lay into me, mom. Like, let me go cut a switch, get the belt. I don't care. And she would smile real sweet and come down. Tyler, uh-huh, you're an idiot. I know, mom. I know. What kind of discipline are you going to, we're just going to wait till your father gets home. And I'd be like, are you serious? Like, I had to spend the next eight hours worrying about what would happen. And then about 10 minutes before we'd get home, I'd put on every pair of underwear Kids, you should try it, <laughs> right? Because I knew what was coming. Like I feared the discipline that he would give me. And here's the beautiful thing in Hebrews chapter 12, is that man, God's discipline isn't punitive. Like he's not responding to us like we respond to our children at times. Like we shouldn't put on every pair of spiritual underwear every time we come to our quiet time with the Lord. Somebody's asking us to do. Instead, he's declaring to us that his discipline is a way that we know we are his children. That's what his discipline affords us. He's telling us that God isn't punitive. He's not disciplining us because he hates us or, or that he desires for us to perish. Rather, his discipline, his training is that sign, that, that stamp that we are his. 
We are a part of God's family and we receive the blessing of his training, of his discipline, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have God's discipline because your sinful heart needs it. And so does mine. I mean, I need the discipline of the Lord to drive out of me the sin that clings so closely to me. Thank you, Hebrews 12, one and two. I need God's discipline to drive out of me the pride that can so easily well up within me. I need God's discipline, and so do you. As God's children, we receive his discipline, we receive this training, and our response to it should be found in verse nine. Notice what he says. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we all respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our response to God's discipline is to be subject to it. The word there in Hebrews 12, it literally means to be submissive, to be willing to submit to the orders and wishes of others. Here's what I love about the Bible, besides that it's great. What I love about the Bible is that it, it's clear. That's what I love. That man, when, when my sinful heart is weighed against the words of scripture, there's not ambiguity. Man, I'm, I'm really struggling with, with just lust, and I'm really struggling. Hey, have you, have you read 1 Thessalonians 4? This is God's will for you, that you should avoid sexual immorality? Well, no, I'm not really concerned about that. What? No, no, no. Hold on. God's just given you instruction, and he's using it to discipline you as a son or daughter of him. Do you believe it? Do you have faith in what God's word says? It's, it's clear. And when we put God's word against our hearts, when we weigh our lives against his word, what we see is his correction time and time again because all of us are dirty, rotten sinners that need his correction. Our response to God's discipline is to be subject to it, to submit ourselves under it because he is God and we are not. It's God's children. Lastly, we are promised discipline and we must respond to discipline correctly. The final aspect that we see here in our text is simply this. Look at verse 10. We see the benefit of discipline. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As you consider enduring God's training, realize God disciplines and trains us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Discipline training seems painful, but it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And discipline training results in a faithful life where with confidence we can say by faith that we believe Jesus is better because we have experienced the joy of his discipline. So Harvest Decatur, we land the plane here this morning with this last statement, that the life of a faithful disciple is marked by their belief that Jesus is better than any alternative. And because of that, they can press on in this race of life. They can resist sin in the daily struggle, and they can endure training as a committed disciple who is pursuing holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So this morning, we come to this point where we ask yet again, do you believe Jesus is better? Do you believe that Jesus is better? Is he worth giving your life to? Is he worth subjecting yourself to? If he is, then this morning, my hope 
is simply this, that if you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, that you would examine your life, that you would examine your life and see how your faith manifests itself in those questions. Man, am I resisting sin or am I giving in? Am I enduring training or am I fleeing from it? And do you believe Jesus is better harvest decator? If you do, then everything changes. And this morning it could be that your first perspective on Jesus has just been given to you. And man, you don't have a relationship with Christ. You aren't a disciple of his. Then realize that there is more to life than the wandering you've experienced. There's more to life than the hope that you presently have. There's more to life than the joys of this present age. There's an eternal life awaiting you through the power of the gospel. And when we understand the beauty of Jesus and place our faith and trust in the completed work that he's given us on the cross, oh, oh, that our life will change. So the invitation for you would you repent of your sins and come to your faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Can I pray for us? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us an opportunity to respond in faith. Whether we've been following you for years or whether right now you could be drawing our hearts to you. So Lord, I do pray that you would allow us an opportunity to respond even now. Father, I thank you for Hebrews chapter 12, the example you give us of faithful followers that we can model our lives after. Lord, ultimately, we desire to model our life after your son. May that be. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.